This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. May decide to go back to our uh, usual standard. It's a bit more mellow, a bit more calm. Uh, but that was a bit of a pick me up for today. So I hope everybody is awake in case you didn't have a chance to have your coffee or tea. Hopefully, everybody's got their lunch in front of them. Our condo crunches are intended to be snappy sessions between half an hour to 45 minutes uh, to provide information to our attendees. As a quick reminder, uh, we don't take any questions during our session here today. We do have our QA session coming up in June. We do that twice a year, typically in June and December. So if you have any burning questions after today's panel, go ahead and send us a message in our uh, usual format in email, and we'll put that on for our Q&A session coming up in June. We have one more condo crunch in May before our June Q&A session. So as I was saying, spring is in the air or maybe rain is in the air. Hopefully our spring, our April showers will bring May flowers. Uh, for now, we're going to go talk about some spring cleaning. Looks like the ministry is doing some spring cleaning as well. We're going to start off very shortly with Cheryl Wood, who is filling in for Jim Davidson today. Jim had an unexpected call away for a particular file today, so he had to step away. And Cheryl very graciously decided or agreed uh, to jump in and present his session today. So we're going to start with our first spring cleaning topic, which is cleaning up uh, the issues related to virtual meetings and virtual and electronic meetings. Cheryl, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Nancy. Um, on April 3rd, the government introduced Bill 91, which, among other things, proposed changes that would enhance a condominium corporation's flexibility as it relates to virtual processes for meetings. So I'm going to review the proposed amendments to the Condominium Act and regulations relating to electronic notices and meetings. Before I run through the proposed amendments, I just want to start by confirming that many of these amendments already are already included in a temporary schedule to the Condominium Act, which is set to expire in September, on September 30th, 2023. So a big part of the proposal is to make those amendments permanent, and I'll flag those as I go through. Overall, we're going to discuss board meetings, me uh, meetings of owners, and electronic notices. So starting with board meetings, the proposed amendment with respect to board meetings would allow directors to attend board meetings electronically unless the corporation's bylaws say otherwise. So this eliminates the need uh, for all directors to consent. If one or more directors wants to attend the meeting electronically, they will be able to do so. As you likely know, this is one of the current temporary amendments and it's making it permanent. However, there is an additional pro proposed provision that I think is interesting that um, you'd want to take a look at. And that's if directors are to be permitted to attend the meeting electronically, the notice of meeting that goes out to the directors must include related instructions about attending and participating in the meeting electronically which I do think makes sense. But I do, I do think this means that whoever calls the meeting gets to decide whether or not electronic attendance will be possible for the particular meeting. If so, the notice of meeting must include related instructions about how the directors can attend and vote electronically. Another proposed provision uh, with respect to board meetings in the case of an electronic board meeting, all persons attending the meeting must 
be able to communicate with each other simultaneously and instantaneously. The current regulations use the word concurrently. So there's a bit of a change there. Anyways, the idea is the same. The idea of voting at the meeting, you have to be there simultaneous with your fellow board members. You can't uh, vote in advance with respect to board meetings. Okay, so looking at meetings of owners, the proposed amendments would allow for meetings of the owners to be held electronically unless the bylaws say otherwise. So there would no longer be a need for a bylaw to authorize electronic attendance or voting at meetings of owners. However, as I'll mention in a little bit, I do still think that a bylaw may be a good idea, a brief bylaw with respect to uh, electronic meetings. So this is one of the current temporary amendments that would become permanent. With that said, there are some additions or changes from the temporary amendments that I want to flag. So here are some of the additional provisions or uh, amendments that we need to look at. If the um, uh, if enacted, the amendments would permit owners to vote electronically before the actual meeting. So owners would be permitted to vote without actually participating in the meeting. Proxy voting is not being eliminated by any means. Owners would still be able to vote by proxy but owners would also be able to vote themselves without using a proxy in advance of the meeting. This does raise a concern about how an advanced vote would count in relation to motions to amend uh, business at the meeting and in relation to business that's amended or changed at the meeting. Depending on the nature of the business for a particular meeting or contentious topics, um, and whether you anticipate that there will be amendments to the business during the meeting, it could become a problem. And in some cases, it might mean that advanced voting should not be permitted. Um, but that's something that the condominium boards will have to determine when they're setting up their meetings. In some cases, they may determine that it's not a good idea to allow advanced voting, and it would probably make sense to just maintain the status quo of what we're doing right now, which is to vote using proxies. The proposed amendments also include a provision stating that whatever method is chosen for holding the meeting, owners must be able to reasonably participate in the meeting. This makes sense, but I am worried about one thing, which is whether one or more owners uh, are able to insist upon attending a meeting in this certain manner, whether in person, by phone, or video conference. I think that the board should be able to decide in each case how the meeting will be held and how owners will be able to vote. The one exception, of course, is that we must accommodate someone with a disability who needs a special method by which to attend the meeting. But otherwise, I think that how owners will attend the meeting should be up to the board. I don't think this is perfectly clear in the proposed amendments. And so I still like the idea of a bylaw uh, to confirm that the board decides on the methods of attending and voting electronically or how the uh, meeting is going to proceed. All right, lastly, I'm looking at electronic notices. So the proposed amendments would allow a condominium corporation to deliver notices to an owner electronically, unless the owner says otherwise or the bylaws say otherwise. There would no longer be any need to obtain the owner's agreement for this purpose. Just to say the corporation's list of owners, uh, names and addresses 
would include each owner's email address if the owner has provided the address in writing to the condominium corporation for any purpose, unless the owner subsequently says that they don't want to receive communication to that email address. So in other words, if an owner communicates by email, the assumption is that they're willing to uh, receive notices that are sent to that email address unless they clearly state otherwise. A key note, owners would still not have the right to obtain email addresses of other owners without the consent of that owner. In my view, this still makes sense. I don't think owners would necessarily want other owners to have their email addresses and then receive email communications from other owners. So owners would still need to consent to the release of their email address to other people. And a couple of final notes. The proposals provide a more fulsome definition of electronic or telephonic means just to cover pretty much any sort of electronic or telephonic means of communication. Also, there would be an amendment to make clear that the records of the condominium corporation would include any records of votes cast through telephonic or electronic means before or at the meeting. Um, this I still think that there, there would be redactions necessary to these documents in order to keep with Section 55 sub 4 of the Act, but that's something that everyone will have to keep in mind. Finally, there are various other amendments to the regulations that appear to me just to be housekeeping designed to remove unnecessary or confusing provisions. As I noted at the beginning of my presentation, the amendments are in proposal stage and comments are still being accepted on these proposals until May 3rd, 2023. Nancy will put the link to that proposal in the chat. All right, back to you, Nancy. Fantastic, Cheryl. Thank you so much. Uh, the, the link is in the chat, folks. So go ahead and click on that link. And that's your opportunity to submit proposals uh, to the government with respect to these proposed amendments. And Cheryl, again, thank you so much for jumping in at the last minute to present on that topic. Really grateful. No problem. Thanks, Nancy. All right, folks, so we're moving right along. We would not enjoy spring as much as we do if we didn't have winter, right? We all, we, you know, we may, we, some of us love winter, some of us may not love it as much, but we wouldn't love spring as much if it wasn't for winter. But part of winter is cleanup. So Melinda's going to talk to us about some winter cleanup, wrapping up your winter contracts, etc. cetera. Uh, Melinda, I turn it over to you. Great. Thanks, Nancy. So I'm going to talk to uh, talk about winter maintenance contracts and snow removal contracts. They don't sound contentious, but they are for two main reasons that I'll get into. So we really wanted this to be on the radar for boards and managers at this time of year, because you're going to start seeing your final invoices from your contractors coming in now. So the first reason for the contention is that given the amount of snow that we've had this year, many condominiums will be in a position where they're going to have to pay an overage cost beyond the basic price of their contract. And so what I mean by this is that the trend in Ottawa is that these snow removal contracts often say up to fit 254 centimeters of accumulation is covered in the base price. And anything beyond that is going to be charged at a specific overage fee. And often the fee is going to be somewhere in the range of, I just was looking at a contract in preparation this morning, $50 per centimeter it can be. I don't know if th there may even be higher charges than that. There may be some lower the point is there's a fee for any centimeters beyond the 254 centimeter mark. 
And I should mention, by the way, at this point, that we think this is really just a trend in Ottawa. Um, we don't necessarily see it a lot in Kingston. And it, it, this may be because we get more snow in our area versus other areas in eastern Ontario. But anyways, it's an Ottawa thing for sure. And the catch is that this year in Ottawa, we've had more than 254 centimeters of snow. And so the overage costs can be quite expensive depending on how your contract calculates them. And so the issue for condos to be thinking about is that this may mean you could be in a budget deficit this year, at least on the, the line item for snow removal. Okay. So the point is that you should be considering whether you have a or are going to have a surplus in your budget from another area um, that can cover the deficit that you have for snow removal. And if not, you can be thinking about things like um, whether you can make installment payments to your contractor if your overage costs are quite substantial. The other thing to be thinking about is status certificate wording. So if your overage causes, does in fact cause a deficit in your budget, that should be mentioned at paragraph nine of your status certificates. And if the overage uh, and deficit are going to ultimately mean that there's an increase in common expenses or a risk of that or a risk of a potential special assessment next fiscal year, that sh should be mentioned at paragraph 12 as well. So now is the time to be thinking about wording in your status certificates just to cover off the corporation in the event that there are concerns about a deficit related to overages on snow removal. The second reason for this being a bit of a contentious topic is that the wording in some of these snow removal contracts is questionable at best. First of all, I should mention that there doesn't seem to be any uniformity across these contracts in Ottawa. The only thing that I've seen that is uniform is the reference to 254 centimeters. If the contract talks about that, the amount is always 254 centimeters. Otherwise, there's different variations of what's going to be counted in accumulation that cover some form of, form of snow, ice, rain, and freezing rain to get to the calculation of 254 centimeters. So some contracts are saying they're just talking about snow and freezing rain accumulating to 254 centimeters. Others add in things like rain, or they talk about all precipitation. So it's important to really figure out what your contract is talking about. Um, and I say that because the problem is that I'm not convinced that there's a lot required to remove rain, for example, especially when the temperatures are above zero, above five degrees. It's not like your contractor's out there in April when the temperature is like plus five or plus 10 with shovels or removing rain from your property. So, and I mentioned this because we had one client where the contract talked about all precipitation between November and April counting towards this accumulation of 254 centimeters. And obviously in that circumstance, it resulted in quite a large overage because the contractor counted literally anything that fell, all precipitation. In that case, our client did um, end up going back and reworking some of the math. And they made an argument that any rain, for example, over that fell over a certain temperature, it might've been zero degrees or it might've been five degrees, I can't remember. 
they eliminated charges for rain in that respect. And then the contractor ended up accepting the adjusted payment there. So my point in all of this, though, is that when you get your contractor's invoice at this time of year and it's talking about an overage, just make sure to take a look at it and make sure the math is calculated properly for any accumulation beyond that 254 centimeters. And I just say that because it's it's going to depend on the wording of your contract. I can't give you a specific number because it'll depend whether you're supposed to count rain or f- just freezing rain or all precipitation, but the, the costs can add up fast and you want to make sure that at least the math is accurate for those overage costs. Also, just be aware that there are definitely variations in these contracts. So if if it's time for you to renegotiate your winter maintenance contract, now might be the time to start thinking about it because it is possible to get contracts that don't even deal with this 254 centimeters of accumulation. They just give you a blanket price for snow removal all year long. The difficulty is you might end up paying more for those types of contracts, but it helps avoid the pitfalls of years when you're going to have a huge overage. So for boards, you can assess whether there's a benefit to you having that type of contract versus one that might be a variable. Um, There's also ways to pay for work related to freezing rain and ice accumulation that might be more equitable. And one of the examples that we've seen is that, um, or that we came up with, is to calculate a certain percentage of rain to be counted as freezing rain each month. So for example, in April, we might say, okay, 5% of the rain that falls is going to be counted as freezing rain and we'll pay the contractor for that 5%. In January, December, the colder winter months, 100% of any precipitation would be counted as freezing rain. The point is that we just don't want your contractor working for free when there is actual work to be done. And I say that on that point because this is an important caveat in this whole snow removal discussion. The reality is, is that snow removal and winter maintenance is a thankless job and contractors are getting sued all the time for slip and falls and their insurance, we all know, has gone through the roof. So it's just a very expensive business to be in. So if you've already got a good contractor, you've got a fair price and they do good work. I wouldn't be pushing back too much on this. I would just make sure that the math adds up because we really don't want to be interfering with the removal of snow and ice from the condominiums property. And I say that point because condominiums, most of us know this, are considered to be the owners of the common elements for occupiers' liability purposes. So the condo is also going to get sued if there's a slip and fall on the condo's property. And they're a a real pain. Those types of claims are a real pain to deal with. Um, Even if you send it to your insurer, there's still work for the board to be doing there. You're going to be fighting over when it snowed, when the contractor arrived, was the person wearing flip-flops, like this kind of stuff. It's a pain. And in closing, I just mentioned the occupier's liability piece because there's been a new adjustment in terms of timing for uh, slip and fall claims. So if um, someone has a slip and fall claim, they must make the owner of the property aware of that claim within 60 days now. This is a new time limit. It used to be two years. So you may, as managers and boards, start to see an influx of letters now coming in about slip and fall claims. That's because the time frame has changed 
the claimant only has 60 days to make their claim and, and serve it to the, or give notice to the owner of the property. So if you do see those letters coming in about slip and falls, start to think about, do you want to get your insurer involved and whether you need to put the contractor on notice too, if they haven't already received notice about the claim. So I'll leave it at that, Nancy, and pass it back over to you. Fantastic, Melinda. Thank you. I think one of Linda's most important points too is if you've got a great relationship, we're not talking about messing up the relationship. We're talking about a little bit of certainty in your budgeting, right? Make sure you understand your contract, know what your potential overages are. We heard from one individual who's listening today that their overages are $305 per centimeter because of the size of their property. So a little bit of certainty, I think, is maybe one of the uh, point we can take away from that. So Melinda, fantastic. Thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Nancy. All right. So let's say you've checked the box. You've got your snow removal contract under control. Well, let's turn to warmer thoughts uh, with that summer landscaping, summer maintenance, spring inspections, uh, and all those other contracts. Christy, over (laughs) to you. Thank you. Um, Yeah. So I'm just going to be speaking pretty briefly about summer landscaping contracts and sort of the provisions that we would like to see in these contracts as uh, lawyers for condominium corporations. So First, first of all, I did want to mention that sometimes the summer landscaping contracts are part of the winter uh, maintenance contract. Sometimes you've signed a contract with a company to provide the services year round. And there's a, there's provisions in the contract for each of those um, uh, services, those separate services, whether or not you have it as part of your winter maintenance contract, or it's a separate contract doesn't really matter. We like to see that there's a contract. So first and foremost, my recommendation is that you ensure that you do have a contract. A signed estimate or a signed quote or proposal is generally not the same thing as a contract. It probably is sufficient to create a contractual relationship and to set out some provisions uh, around which that contractual relationship is built. However, it's not going to include the same level of specificity. And there's a bunch of provisions in a contract that won't you're just not going to find in an estimate or proposal. So even if you have a signed proposal or estimate, if that's what the contractor wants to do to start the relationship, that's fine. But it should be on the understanding that the corporation is going to need a signed contract in order to move forward with the service. With respect to the contract itself, some condominium corporations have a contract that they've used year after year after year. Same thing with contractors. So depending on who's presenting the contract or um, making the proposal in terms of the, the, the contract and what it's going to include, Sometimes these things are just used um, year after year after year and not really reviewed. So it's important to ensure that you're reviewing your contract, even if it's your own contract that you've used for many, many years. um, It's important to read through it on an annual basis to ensure that it includes what you need and it doesn't, it excludes anything that's really not necessary because anything that's in there that isn't applicable or necessary can create confusion. And the whole purpose of a contract as Nancy and Melinda have alluded to, is to provide for certainty. And so the, the clearer the contract in terms of what's expected and uh, what each party is going to, to provide and what they're going to get from the contract, the less risk of dispute. So that's the first sort of overall recommendation is to ensure that you have a contract and to review its wording, make sure that it makes sense. If you don't have a contract or or you don't have one that you necessarily agree with or uh, like, then it's something that you can certainly ask your lawyers to provide for you. They can prepare sort of a standard contract that can be applicable for your uh, summer and spring maintenance requirements. 
I know that a lot of managers also have uh, really good contracts that they use sort of pro forma uh, for their clients. And um, and those are, are fantastic as well. The, in terms of the provisions in the contract that we like to see, so I'm going to run through, the, there are some basic provisions. And so most of what I'm going to say is pretty basic and most contracts are going to have these things, but I'm just going to mention them so that you can keep an eye for them. So obviously you're going to want to specify the term of the contract. So the duration, when does it start and when does it end? And that way everybody knows um, exactly when the services are to be provided. Likewise, what is the payment schedule? So what, what is going to be paid for the contract and, and what is the schedule? When are the payments due? Um, and what happens if payment is not made on time? So those are relatively basic provisions that we would expect to see in every uh, contract. As well, you're going to want to set out the specifications for the work to be done. And here, I would encourage you to be as detailed as possible in terms of what the expectations are. Because again, the more detail is in the contract, the more clarity there is for everybody in terms of what the expectations are. Often we see the specifications for the contract in a summer maintenance contract included as a, an appendice or a schedule to the contract. And it would set out in great detail exactly what services are going to be provided. And the other important thing about specifications is to indicate the frequency. And so what, what's going to be done on a weekly basis, what's going to be done on a monthly basis, and what's going to be done sort of be at the beginning and at the end of the contract and any other thing, obviously, in terms of additional services to be provided throughout. Insurance requirements should be built into the contract. So specifying what insurance you expect the contractor to maintain, both in terms of property and any damage caused to the property, as well as liability insurance. So any any claims that could arise as a result of uh, the work that's being done on the property, any damage to other people's property and, and or personal injury that could arise as a result of, uh, uh, of the work. You're going to want the provisions uh, of the contract to specify what kind of insurance is required and what the maximum uh, coverage is that you expect. Same with WSIB coverage. You're going to want to ensure that the contract specifies that it's the contractor uh, contractor is covered for WSIB and that they've uh, they provide you with the WSIB certificate, either as part of the contract or or on demand by the corporation. Indemnification. So where there is a situation where the contractor causes damage to the property or does something that results in a potential claim against the condominium corporation. So Melinda mentioned earlier that the condominium corporation is the occupier of the common elements. So anything that happens on the common elements that causes damage to someone else's property or causes harm is the responsibility of the condominium corporation. And insofar as an individual has a claim in relation to damage or harm, they're going to be looking at the condominium corporation as the occupier of the property. So you're going to want to ensure that there's something in your contract to confirm that if damage or harm is caused by the contractor or as a result of something the contractor has done, uh, that they have a responsibility to indemnify the corporation in the event of any claim. So you're going to want to be able to pass on that liability through the contractual provisions. Last but not least, termination provisions and default provisions. So make sure that your contract is clear in terms of how and when you can terminate the contract. Um, is it only if there's a problem with the services provided or can you terminate at any point in time for any reason? The latter is obviously provides greater flexibility to the condominium corporation in, in so far as you don't have to prove that the contractor was negligent in order to terminate uh, or didn't provide the services under the contract in order to terminate the contract. You can just do it if you're not satisfied, period. You don't have to prove anything. You just terminate and that's that. 
that's going to be less common because um generally like condominium corporations, contractors are going to want certainty. So they're not going to want to see their contracts terminated mid-season for um, potentially uh, reasons that are beyond their control. But anyway, the, the important thing is to pay attention to what your contract says in terms of termination and make sure that it makes sense to you. Uh, default provisions. So provisions specifying what happens if there's default under the contract, what happens if the contractor is not providing the services in accordance with the specifications or they maybe just stop coming on site. We've seen that as well. So what rights does the corporation have? Can you charge the contractor for costs you incur to get someone else to come in to do the work that they should have done? What are, what are the remedies available there? Last thing I wanted to mention is uh, with respect to property inspections. So this is separate and apart from the contract, uh, the contractual provisions, but Melinda just talked about the winter maintenance contracts. I'm obviously talking about spring and summer maintenance contracts. Now is a good time to do the property ins- to do either an annual or, or biannual property inspection to confirm the condition of the property. First of all, it might help identify if there was any damage caused as a result of the winter maintenance work. And it will give you a, um, a complete picture of the condition of the property prior to any summer maintenance work being undertaken um, at the property. So obviously you're going to want to look at the condition of the buildings themselves, but also things like roads, curbs, sidewalks, uh, unit entry areas, areas where work and machinery is, is maybe going to be used that are potentially prone to damage by these maintenance contracts. And then landscaped areas, getting again, getting a complete picture of how your landscaped areas look now. Um, if they're, and, and it's a good opportunity to, to look for any trees that may have died since last summer, plants that may have died that need replacement, that kind of thing. Photo logs are great for this this kind of thing as well, so that if there's question later as to what the condition of the property was prior to the contract, the contractual services being provided, you have a very literally a clear picture of uh, of what the condition of the property was. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much. Fantastic, Christy. Okay, so a lot to be thinking about with your contracts. One thing we're going to talk about, not today, but uh, a little bit of a a teaser for one of our next sessions is, okay, you've hired the proper contractors to do most of the heavy lifting. What do some of your owners want to be doing work on the property, planting uh, flowers, et cetera, pruning some trees, et cetera? Uh, Christy talked about WSIB coverage, insurance, et cetera, occupier's liability, all those things. So what happens when you've got owners who want to do this work? So for now, make sure you've got your professionals engaged, make sure you've got your contracts in place and stay tuned for one of our next sessions about whether what to do if your owners want to be doing some of this work. So Christy, thank you so much. All right. And now April showers are done. We've got Mayflowers coming in and we've got everybody wanting to come outside and have parties, barbecues. Maybe they want to put up their gazebos, have some fire pits. Well, Nicole, what do we have to be thinking about for everybody who wants to do all of these fun things? I turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Nancy. Uh, hello to everybody. And as Nancy mentioned, I get to talk about the fun stuff uh, because I think we are all ready for our patio furniture, barbecues, fire pits, and outdoor parties. Um, but there are important considerations to keep in mind for all of these things in the condominium context. And I'm going to give an overview of the things you may need to consider or check before you get summer ready. So let's remember that we're generally talking about exclusive use common element space. As our listeners will know, this means that that space, the use of that space, is going to be subject to the condominium's governing documents. I'm going to start by talking about those documents, but keep in mind that for many of these things, 
Other sorts of laws outside of your own governing documents may need to be considered as well, such as municipal bylaws and fire codes. What other things you might need to look at will depend on what fund seasonal item you're talking about. So again, beginning with your condominium corporation's governing documents, what are you looking for? Well, first, restrictions on permitted items. We often see condominium rules that are clear on what items may be stored on exclusive, exclusive use common element areas. So it's a good idea for residents to check your rules before picking up that seasonal furniture or barbecue. There's a decision from the Condominium Authority Tribunal that gives a good example of the creative ways that people might try to interpret what is permitted on the common element. However, this owner's argument that exercise equipment was seasonal furniture was ultimately not successful. I'm going to share a picture from the case so that you can see for yourself what was at issue. And you should be all seeing that now. Yes, we do, Nicole. Perfect. So this condominium's rules permitted only seasonal furniture on balconies. What you can see on the screen is a picture of what the owner in this case claimed was seasonal furniture, claiming it was used to hold flowers in the summer and Christmas lights around Christmas. As it's holding flowers here in the picture that was taken. Uh, but again, the cat did not accept the owner's argument here. Though seasonal furniture was not defined in the condominium's rules, the tribunal found that it was clear, even with a Google search, that this structure was not seasonal furniture. So be careful to make sure that your seasonal item doesn't require too much of a creative interpretation of the rules. Next, you may also need to look at uh, requirements for common element modification. This will depend on how the seasonal item is to be installed. Digging in for a fire pit, for example, could require a Section 98 agreement, but again, this will be very fact-specific. In general terms, any item that is quite seriously attached or affixed to the land or to the building is a fixture and is therefore part of the real estate. As such, that item would normally be considered a common element modification. On the other hand, something that's not seriously affixed may be more in the nature of a chattel or an item of personal property. If that is the case, the item would likely not be a common element modification and therefore would not be governed by Section 98. However, the item might still be governed by the condominium corporation's rules. As a quick example, we've seen these principles applied sometimes to hot tubs that are not very permanently affixed to the property, but they can be subject to the condominium's rules. And finally, on the topic of governing documents, let's not forget that all residents are always entitled to reasonable enjoyment of the property. So make sure that any outdoor parties don't breach nuisance or noise prohibitions in your condominium's rules. Now on the subject of noise prohibitions, municipal bylaws will also be relevant here. The city of Ottawa's noise bylaw, for instance, prohibits noise that disturbs your neighbors overnight between the hours of 11 p.m. and 7 a.m and also requires that noise is kept to a reasonable level during the daytime. In addition to bothering your neighbors, violating the city rules on noise can ultimately result in fines. So again, make sure that those outdoor parties are kept to reasonable noise levels. You'll also need to check municipal bylaws for fire pits, since permits are generally required for open air fires on private property. And there are restrictions on when and where permit holders may have a fire. So again, make sure you're looking at your city's requirements, requirements which are set out in municipal bylaws. 
For propane barbecues, there are also technical standards and safety codes that will be relevant. These set out requirements for safe transportation and storage of propane cylinders. These requirements include specific restrictions on transporting propane cylinders in elevators and where propane cylinders can be stored in relation to windows and doors. For these reasons, we often see condominium rules that prohibit propane barbecues on balconies because it would be not practical or impossible to comply with the requirements on propane cylinders. So overall, my message in relation to getting summer ready with patio furniture, barbecues, and more is to make sure that you check your condominium's governing documents, municipal bylaws, and appropriate standards and safety codes as necessary to make sure that the fun isn't interrupted with compliance issues. If in doubt, get advice about what's permitted and what's not. And that's all for me. Back to you, Nancy. Fantastic, Nicole. And creativity A+. Plus. Uh, but again, creativity isn't always going to win at the end of the day. So that was fantastic. And thank you for sharing the photo. That uh, that was helpful as well. All right, folks. Well, that wraps up our April uh, Condo Crunch session. Just a quick reminder, we do turn these into podcasts. Our March podcast should be out very shortly. And stay tuned for this one to come out probably in about a month. We're usually about uh, three to four weeks after our session before we produce the podcast. So again, we have one more session coming up in May before our June Q&A session. So if you have any questions that you want to have answered uh, with respect to the general matters of condominium corporations, go ahead and send us an email. Quick reminder, uh, if your question is very unit specific or very condo specific, like so specific that it really only relates to your condo, we may not be able to answer it as it may constitute specific advice to a condominium corporation. We would have to do condo, uh, conflict searches. But any other types of questions about the general affairs of a condominium corporation, fire them off to us. And if you have any suggestions for an up upcoming condo crunch, we all also welcome those as well. So we wish everybody a fantastic rest of the day Thursday. Here's hoping that the showers won't be quite as heavy as they're predicting this weekend and we can all get outside and maybe look at some of that summer fun Nicole was talking about. Be safe, be well, and thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.